Alex Studd. And I'm Ron Studd, Alex's brother. And I promise this is not a show about woodworking. Damn it. I know, I know. It was a discussion we had. We decided not to talk about woodworking. But this is a variety show. Ron and I have some interesting backgrounds sure. uh, that we're going to talk about. We have a lot of perspectives. Also, you and I can probably talk about anything to anybody. That's, that's fair. That's fair. So we're excited to have conversations. This is the first episode of hopefully many. But I think the most important thing to keep in mind is we're going to be having special guests on with each episode going forward. Sure. And we'll have an opportunity to kind of pick their brain, get their perspectives, and hopefully have some really good dialogue. That's that's really what we're hoping. Because I think at the end of the day, what we want to do with this podcast is to really just get into some very interesting discussions about a variety of different topics. So you Some know, are going to be serious. Some are going to be completely off the wall. But end of the day, anybody, anywhere could probably pick this up, listen, and hopefully have a good time. Exactly. So I know I, I used to listen to podcasts all the time during my commute to and from work. Obviously, with COVID, that's not the case. Yeah, I, my audiobook collection is seriously in need of some help because I'm not commuting either. Yeah, but we both love co- podcasts. We've listened to a lot. And yes. that's actually listening to podcasts is what has caused us to say, well, maybe we should have a podcast of our own. Why not? We've got some differing kind of views on different things. We've got a lot of different experience. And we know a lot of great people. So let's kind of use that together to really launch a great podcast. And with that, why don't we get started? Let's, uh, but before we do that, let's first cheers to our first podcast. Cheers. So anyway, yeah, as Alex mentioned, um, we're hoping to kind of have this podcast to kind of go into a number of different topics. Um, Alex and I have lived kind of in many different places, as he mentioned. So we have a lot of different perspectives. We've kind of experienced different things in the world and... One of the fun things, or at least I hope that you'll find fun, is that we've got differing perspectives and different uh, ways of weighing in on different topics, and a lot of it's kind of general interest. We're not really super hardcore one way or the other, really, but we love to just talk things out. Uh, Yeah, I would agree, and I think that just is kind of our background, where there really wasn't any universal truths uh, to anything, right? We, We tried very much in growing up as a family we didn't really have many things that were binary, black and white. Uh, the world very much is in shades of gray. Uh, not to quote the movie or the show. Sure. Uh, but but certainly it's it's our perspective. And so a lot of family discussions we would have at the dinner table, um, if you were a friend or someone else not part of the family visiting, you might think we would get into an all all you know uh, a fight or an argument. And it was no, this is just how we discuss uh, and and have. Conversation with one another. Sure. Uh, that was something that I always found kind of funny when I'd have friends over. Uh, they'd always be like, wait, do you guys like debate like that every night? And it was, I don't know. I mean, to be fair, too, uh, it, there wasn't necessarily always a sense of debate. What I would say more or less, though, is somebody always wanted to take kind of the devil's advocate. And somebody always would kind of take different you know, vantage points. And part of that kind of process kind of helps to pull out your own thoughts, your own kind of opinions, and what are what's kind of the reality of the situation, right? Well, and it's interesting because I think when we were younger, we didn't even realize that others would interpret it as a debate. Again, it was just the mm-hmm. way we discussed. Um, and it was almost always, uh, as you said, someone playing devil's advocate and trying to make someone think about something from a different 
perspective. Sure. So you know that's that's really the the origin of, of who we are, and I think that's that that helped make the uh, lack of a better word the makeup of who we are, and so that's certainly going to be part of the discussion. Uh, we're going to have a lot of different topics, and we're going to bring on different guests. But I think for this episode, we're going to kind of want to give you just a, a quick taste of who we are and sort of uh, some of the topics that we'll be talking about. But sure. I think Ron, you know. It makes sense to take a step back real quick and, you know, tell the listeners, what's the origin of this podcast? What made us decide to create Between Two Studs? Sure. So, um, yeah, we were actually out doing a father-son road trip out in Southwest this summer. And um, actually, no, it was not summer. It was fall. And when we were out there, we were listening to some other podcasts and just kind of hearing some of the banter uh, as well as some of the banter that Alex and I were having in the car, even with with our father, um, you know, it, it kind of got brought up. Well, we do have a lot of different kind of interests and topics, and I think we have a very civil form of discourse where Alex and I don't always agree on everything. There's a lot that we do agree on, but on the other hand, you know, it always seems like there's maybe sometimes a lack of really good content just to hear different vantage points, learn a little bit about the world, and to kind of come to your own conclusion, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So we were somewhere between, I think, Phoenix and Palm Desert Yeah. when we kind of just said, well, what if we did have our own podcast? What if we had our own banter? We have a lot of friends who have very diverse careers and interests. What if we brought them on and picked their brain? And hey, maybe that'd be a fun conversation. Maybe that'd be a good, fun podcast. Oh, and who are we? We're the studs. Our guest would be between two studs. Yep. Maybe that's a slight steal of Zach Galifianakis' show, but hey, uh, sort I, of a... I think he'd be fine with it. I think so, too. So that's really, in a nutshell, uh, in a nutshell what this is all about, and we're going to see how it goes. So I, I think, Ron, maybe kind of going back to what we talked about right at the beginning, how we come from a very diverse set of locations. You lived internationally at one point. You sure. were living in Singapore, and I think I've lived in... I think six states in the last seven years or something crazy like that so um you know I, I think for me one of my favorite joys of traveling and seeing the world is experiencing regional foods and cuisines um and i know you just recently in the last year and a half moved to atlanta that's right i'd be curious what your thoughts are you know you lived in the northeast most of your life outside of that stint uh in singapore mm-hmm. what if what have you noticed differences about living in the southeast and living in georgia Wow. So there's just a lot there. It's kind of one of those things, too, where I feel like um, in the whole kind of um, culinary you know, footprint of the world, the Northeast, for better or worse, tends to kind of unfortunately kind of get portrayed as very bland. It's kind of like the um, I, I don't mean to, to offend any potential English uh, listeners, <laughs> but typically with English cuisine, it isn't like, oh, yeah, that was amazing. And it's sort of similar where you have, you know, in the Northeast, I think, yeah, you do have some good regional foods, such as, I would say, so we're from the Buffalo region, uh, you have buffalo wings, um, and in Philadelphia, you have, you know, cheesesteaks. There's there's many other things, and I like, I, and I have to say, I love New England clam chowder. Yes, well, I think what's also important to note, though, is, and I'm biased here, but I do think the best pizza in the country 
oh, is sure. is in the Northeast. And sure. it's, there's actually a thing called the Pizza Belt. It actually has its own Wikipedia page. Um, and it makes sense, right? When you sure. think about Italian immigrants, where did they settle? New York. Uh, the New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia area. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what your perspective is, but when I lived in Texas, for example... I didn't find that many great pizza places. No. Really, really great brisket and barbecue um, and Tex-Mex. Sure. But, but pizza was an area that, uh, yeah, was, was subpar at best. And, you know, you think about it from a historical standpoint. Okay, well, many Italians didn't settle in Texas. Nope. Maybe that has part of the reason. Sure. Right? So I think it, it is funny because I do think, I think it's something crazy. Like 40% of the entire United States' population is yeah. in the Northeast. So I do think you, you get this hodgepodge of food, and although I think there's a lot of flavor, I think when you compare it to, oh, wow, well, you know, Southern California or the South or even like Chicago Deep Dish or even like cheese curds from Wisconsin, and right. you know, there is this uh, like, oh, yeah, it's sort of just like your traditional whatever you want to consider American food. Right. Um, but there is a lot of uniqueness to not only the Northeast, but wherever you are. And so kind of getting back to where you are in Georgia, you know, maybe what's a place or two or that you've had that you were really blown away by? So I think that's been kind of the crazy part. I mean, I, so like I said, I've been here for a little over a year and a half. And granted, we are dealing with some of the fun of COVID. Um, but the big thing that's kind of blown me away is there's been a lot of restaurants we've been to. And almost all of the restaurants kind of start at, you know, good, and they only go up from there. Now, I realize that maybe I'm just hitting the right places, but I don't know. I've been blown away by a lot of the food, and I think part of it is you kind of have a good amount, like in Atlanta, right? You have a good amount of people who've moved in from other parts of the country, um, and that's like a lot of metro areas where you've got so many people who are not from there. Um, and then with that too, they just bring everything that you love. On top of that, you have all of the great Southern cooking. And then you also get a little bit of that Creole influence, you know, and that's something too where I love food that's got like a little bit of spice that tries to do something different. And even just like fusion food, right? Yeah. So wait, so let me ask, are, are you are you saying that the bar might be a little bit higher in the South, maybe just because it's part of the Sun Belt, a lot more new people are moving in. Like, are you saying that, you know, we're maybe in the Northeast, you can have a place that, eh, maybe the food's not so good, but it's been there for a while, it's got a name, it's got an establishment, it will survive. You're saying maybe in the South that's not the case. Yeah, I, that's what I'm thinking. Because I think at least from what where I live and what we're seeing here, um, it does seem like there's a lot of competition and when there is that much competition, it kind of brings out the best from all the different restaurants because you know you have to kind of bring your, your A game. And I, I would say, to be fair, that's kind of probably like what you'd see in like New York City too, where, yeah, there's going to be some places that can kind of get by, but they have a lot of regulars that keep it going. But for the really, really high-end places, unless you have a great chef, you have that great kind of cuisine that just brings you there, you're not going to last long. Yeah. Have you gotten to a point, I know you've been here about a year and a half, that if you had a visitor, you say, oh, we got to get you, whether it's a drink, whether it's a meal, what, is there something that you'd say, oh, this is, this is an Atlanta or a Georgia staple? I guess the only thing I would say that's really, really in that category for me so far, um, I think has been varsity. Yeah. 
And varsity, for anybody who's listening that's maybe not aware, varsity goes back really far. I want to say 1910, maybe somewhere around there. Probably something like that. And it's really, really closely associated with University, uh, well, Georgia Tech, right? Or is it University of Georgia? You'd know better than me. We'll have to we'll have to check that out. We'll have to check out, and I'll have to edit this, and we'll take all sorts of nasty comments correcting me. But <laughs> trust me on this one, uh, varsity. So varsity's in Center City, and it's it's really interesting. But you know, the big thing I would say that I love is um, they do a frozen orange, mm-hmm. um, and it's like. I can't even describe it. It's like a slush, like an orange slush that just is taken to the next level. Now, orange slush, I mean, are we talking like orange soda or is it more like a tang or what is it? I'm saying it's like an icy, but like orange just perpetuated in flavorness. <laughs> like, you know, that's the part that always kills me with like ices is like some of them just have way too much ice in it. And it's like, okay, you get the two or three sips of the orange and you're like, ooh, that was good. And then after that, you're like... I'm just sucking on ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like pure just awesomeness. Well, it sounds like something I'd want to put rum into. I think it would be a wonderful addition <laughs> to it. So, yeah. So, anyway. Um, but, yeah. No, I've been impressed with the food overall. Good. Um, but I will agree to your point about, like, pizza. It's, it's like something where I just haven't quite had pizza that's maybe quite as good. It's not been bad. Um, but, but even, too, like... Um, I know, like, uh, wings, I'm a, you know, we can be a bit picky on wings. Sure. And there's a lot of regional foods, like you said, that... Well, and you know, it's funny. There's, there's the cultural element in where different groups of people have wound up. But, you know, what I've always heard when I lived in Texas, because I always complained about good pizza, sure. is they always say, oh, well, it's the water. It's the water. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I, you know, I, I, it seems hard to believe that that would have such an impact on the food. Um, but it's, it's... It's very possible it's true. I mean, I know living in Texas, uh, not only could you not get good pizza, but you couldn't get a good bagel. Mm. And, you know, that's something, I guess, living in Boston, living in Philly, um, you know, you really love a good bagel, especially with lox and cream cheese. and, And I miss that, you know, for the two and a half years I lived in Texas. Well, the other part, too, that, and maybe this is just also another weird thought, is how much of the food that you like maybe also just has to do with like a certain comfort factor. Like that was what you were brought up with. That's what you know. And even though if you brought in a survey of 25 guests to come and try it, they would be like, oh, that's kind of down here. It's not where you think it is. How much of the food that we love maybe due to that? You're saying it's perception? It you're saying be. You're saying take the exact same sandwich. Yep. That I had in a really good Jewish deli in New York City. Uh, when you, you're right in Manhattan or you're in Brooklyn or wherever, you're saying take that exact same sandwich, but now you're somewhere in the Austin, Texas burbs, and it just, you're saying even if it tasted the same, maybe my perception would not be as good. Right. Well, there's a lot to be said about ambiance. Like, okay, you're in, you, you just described it. You've given a story to it where you're like, I'm in a Jewish deli. It is amazing. I'm in New York City. I couldn't get more authentic for awesome bagelness if I wanted. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's an interesting question uh, and it's an interesting thought. We'll have to think about that. We'll have to get, maybe get back to that one. Yeah. Well, so it's funny because I live in Chicago and I think in Chicago, there's the one item everyone always thinks about, right? And it's deep dish pizza. That's what everyone always thinks about. And, and quite frankly, I, I don't even love deep dish pizza that much. And in fact, 
most of the people I've met in Chicago who are from Chicago don't really care for it much either. It's almost like a, it's almost like the Philly cheesesteak with Philadelphia. It's like, yeah, you live in Philly, once in a while you'll have it, but most people I knew, and you worked in Center City for a while, right? at least my experience, it was like, eh, yeah, I'd rather have a broccoli rob. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I find the same thing in Chicago where the only time I ever have deep dish pizza is when I am hosting tourists, mm. when I'm hosting friends and family, and they want the deep dish pizza. Right. Um, to me, I describe a deep dish pizza, it's like, it's almost like... Uh, it's a heavy pizza. It, it's like eating a lasagna pizza form. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's just super thick. Um you know, it's hard for me to even compare it to pizza. It's almost its own body. It's almost its own food group. Um, so, but, yeah, you know, I, I don't really think a whole lot about deep dish pizza. And there's a lot of places that aren't doing deep dish pizza. But it's a big controversy. You know, you, But it's almost, you almost hear people talk, oh, New York, thin crust versus Chicago. But I don't really know many people from Chicago who feel passionately. Um, and, in fact, I go a step further when... when if you were to ask me the same question about Chicago, if you were to say, well, I'm visiting Chicago, what is something totally unique to Chicago that I should do or see or try, I would tell people Malort, yes. Jepson's Malort. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I could tell you all about it, but you as someone who's had it more recently than me, yep. would love to hear your perspective. The, the background, before I let Ron finish, is is this is, uh, it's, it's an alcoholic beverage that is called Malort. It's Swedish, and it translates to the word wormwood. And it was very, very popular during Prohibition and in the 30s and in the 40s. And to this day, it's a very popular drink that is very, very regionalized to Chicago. I don't think you can get it outside the immediate Chicago area. But you had it recently. I'd love to get your thoughts. Tell the audience what your perspective of Malort was. Yeah, so... You know, if, if anybody does ever give you Malort, um, now to be fair, I will admit I've got some weird taste things where I will certainly have things that most people would be like, nah, I'm not even going to try that. But I'll try it because you know what? There's been very few things that I've actually not liked. And it's kind of funny. I've got a, an eight-year-old and she's always asked me, well, what are the things that you don't like? And I'm like, boy, that's tough. I, I'm going to have to think about that one. Uh, but but so anyway, um, the way I would say it is, as Alex mentioned, it's a very herbal um, spirit, right? Yes. So with herbal spirits, number one, you kind of have to throw out the, the sweetness is, is not there, right? So you're kind of dealing with something else. You've got some weird kind of thing going on with nature. And it's I think that <laughs> for the most part, most of the things that we have, most drinks, they have no herbal most part of our normal cuisine has nothing really herbal to it. I think herbal tastes and earthy textures and flavors are definitely more Eastern yeah. than Western in right. terms of cultural. Right. I mean, Americans don't drink teas, right, at the, at the quantity, no, especially really. especially like a green tea, right? Sure. So keep going, but I, I think that's a big part of it. So it's got a lot of bitters to it, to be fair. Yep. And, and then the other part of it, too, is so the first time you sip it, you're like, ooh, that's got a little bit of a bitter bite to it and for a lot of people i think that's enough to be like oh okay i'm done but i like to let it kind of you got to ride it out right and as you ride it out i would say it's got like a little bit of like a grapefruit kind of thing going definitely um it's definitely got there's some kind of citrus something that goes with that no i grapefruit is the word i always use to describe it yeah 
And then you kind of have these other little earthy undertones. And um, it's, yeah, it stands out. I could see where, if, in, from my understanding, I think a lot of people from Chicago, when you're trying to kind of haze people who are visiting, here, have this stuff. And to be fair, I think like John Hodgman, he does the same thing. I think when he goes around and he does his book tours and stuff, he'll actually bring bottles of Malort with him. And he'll oh, that's like, funny. Here, try this. This is the two-fisted drinker's drink. Yeah, well, you know, I think you hit it right on the head there. Um, I think for most people, they've never had anything like Malort. And so it's just, it's a complete shock to their taste buds. And, you know, I think a lot of people that I've introduced it to, yeah, they think I'm hazing them and then they never want to try it again. But I think if you, for the people I've known, like yourself, that have tried it, said, hmm, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know how to feel about that. And you try it again and you try it again before you know it. It's actually sort of a, a quaint drink that you enjoy. Um, and, and don't forget, if you keep drinking it, you will also get drunk. Well, yes, that, that there's always the, the positive benefit of that. That leads to some appreciation, I will acknowledge. <laughs> well, and in Chicago, you go to any bar that's worth a damn, right? In yep. Chicago. And they will have what they call a Chicago handshake. If you go to any bar and say, I'll have a Chicago handshake... What they will give you is they will give you a shot of Malort and a can of Old Style. And Old Style is uh, it's an inexpensive beer. Think of it, if you've never had it, it's kind of like a PBR. And yeah, so it's it's a shot and a beer. And it's usually somewhere between 6 and 8 bucks. So if you just kind of want to go to a bar after work and have a drink, get a little buzzed, uh, you get the Chicago Handshake. And you'll see actually a lot of bars have specials. You'll see, you know, the little different days of the week and they'll have, there's actually, you can Google images of the Chicago handshake. So, um, it's a unique thing. It's a unique beverage. And actually, anytime I leave Chicago, I always pick up a couple bottles and I'll, I'll give it to friends, um, either people who've never had it before and, hey, we're in for a doozy or people who've visited me, fallen in love with it and now they can't get it. And so they go, hey, Alex, can you grab me a bottle? Yeah. And to be fair, so for Christmas, Alex also gave me another bottle. I've got three in my liquor cabinet now. So hopefully that'll hold you a couple months. Here's hoping. But I also did ask, I was like, would you like any one night? And he's just like, well, you've got all these other wonderful spirits. Maybe we should have those. And I was like, well, that's fair. I get it. He's <laughs> away. Why not? So Exactly. So Speaking of. Well, I was going to say, you know, I, I do think we're talking about travel. We're talking about all the wonderful places to go in the world and regional cuisines. Um, and, of course, that's difficult right now. Mm. That's, that's difficult to be doing during COVID. And so I'm curious um, sort of what you've been doing in an effort to stay uh, uh, connected, right, with different flavors and different um, uniquenesses from around the world. I know for me, and I think we'll talk about this, is – I've been trying to get a lot more into spirits recently, sure. trying to really understand rye and whiskeys and bourbons and scotches and how they are similar, how they are different. Um, what have you been trying? I've been trying a little bit of everything as well. And in fact, what are we drinking right now? So this is Old Bardstown. This and I is, promise you they're not sponsoring us. They're not sponsoring us, um, but it would be cool if they ever did want to in the future. <laughs> um, so this is Old Bardstown. It's Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. So it comes in at 45% alcohol by volume, so it's 90 proof. Um, and so for this, this was actually something that my local um, liquor store has some great uh, folks that work there. 
And um, they're really cool to be like, oh, hey, man, try this stuff out. If you haven't tried it, you should check it out. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually kind of interesting because um, with getting into spirits specifically, um, one of the big things that's very easy for a lot of folks to go to, especially when you're very new to spirits, is you hear about Buffalo Trace. Mm-hmm. And Buffalo Trace, to be fair, makes some amazing spirits. So if you've ever heard of Pappy, right? Pappy is is made with with the same you know the same spirit, really the same uh, juice um, as what goes into like Eagle Rare, Buffalo Trace, um, E. H. Taylor. So there's a whole bunch of these wonderful brands. And the problem though is that a lot of liquor stores, and especially the one I go to, um, the store clerk he's always like. Oh man, the second that they unload a pallet, anything from them, people are always asking for it and they have to like try to like scramble to get it out there yeah. and handle everything. And he's just like, So, well, and how do you prioritize it? Who do you give it to? Right. And, and luckily, for so most of the stuff that most people get, like the Eagle Rare or the Buffalo Trace, they produce it in pretty high quantities. They know that there's a big demand for it. But for the other stuff, that's where it gets a lot harder to find. Well, that's what causes the black market to right. skyrocket the price, and that's why a, a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle is insane. Yeah, I mean, I think retail it's only a couple hundred bucks, but if you wanted to get it on the black market, it's several thousand dollars. That's right. So, but it's kind of funny because I see parallels like with wine. So yeah. somebody will know of a certain vintage, a certain winery that'll make something, and very quickly everyone just kind of focuses laser focus on that particular uh you know wine uh from that you know vintner in that particular year sure and the price is insane but what i think is interesting at least with whiskey for anybody that's listening and may be interested seriously go out and try a lot of the stuff like try the cheap drink try the expensive drink try the stuff in between because it's a lot like wine you can find some amazing wines that are maybe like a $9 bottle. And it's absolutely fantastic. Well, you know, I, I agree with that statement, but there is a challenge, Ron. And, and that sure. is, for me, um, you know, I still consider myself a novice when it comes to spirits. But historically, and it's funny I'm saying the word historically because I'm talking about nine months ago, mm. I could go to a bar and I would say, you know, uh, I've never heard of that bourbon before. I've never heard of that scotch before. I'll try it. Mm-hmm. But you really don't have that luxury right now, at least in most parts of the country right now. So am I going to make a decision to blindly go with making a $80 purchase at a liquor store? Right? Like, How do I get to try something without um, making that level of commitment to purchasing an entire bottle? Yeah, and that's a fair point. Like, I, I think that one of the things that you can do, so there are, like, you can pick up like the little, like... Um, the little like bottles that you get at the liquor store for like your airplane travel. <laughs> yeah. But um, those are usually, I mean, to be fair, those are like, those are usually those super well-known brands. Right. I'm getting Jim Bean or right. I'm getting like Tito's vodka. Right. Like, right. I'm, but, not, I'm not getting uh, some high end trial of sure. But there are also like uh, sampler things that you can do too. So, okay. um, like we, we both do uh, Flaviar, Flaviar, um, mm-hmm. And, and that's something where, to be fair, we're also not promoted by them or sponsored by them. Um, but that's something that I kind of got into early into this year because it was something where you can order the spirits online. They'll send you a few samplers. They'll yeah, and they come in like 50 milliliter bottles. So, and that's like 
what I think a, I think a standard shot's forty milliliters. Yeah. So it's a little bit more than a shot. Gives you just enough to kind of taste it, make your own thoughts on it. Gives you a little bit of information on it, and they do have like some good like knowledge building activities and things on there. But the big thing that I liked, at least very early into COVID, was there was such a level of like, oh man, I don't even want to go outside. Um, even like our groceries, you know, we were having like delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like wiping all of the groceries down. I, realistically, in hindsight, that was probably a little bit well, crazy. Well, people didn't know though. But you didn't know. Right. And especially if you're stuck indoors all day, you're not going to bars anymore. You kind of need something to drink to kind of keep things all copacetic, right? Yeah, I agree. Well, and again, this goes back to what we just said. I think being able to try different spirits from all over the world mm-hmm. is a way from your home to be able to be connected with different cultures. Right. Uh, and those different cultures, believe it or not, can be uh, as simple as Tennessee whiskey versus Kentucky bourbon. I mean, sure. you tell a Kentuckian and a Tennessean that those are the same things, and you're going to get punched in the yeah. eye. Yeah, that's fighting words. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what's cool, too, is you know at the same liquor store, you can get um, so you can get some scotch. Uh, you can get whiskey from anywhere in the world, really, because at this point, lots of places all over the world are making whiskeys, um, and all you know, all the other types of beverages you can think of w- within that space. So, like rums, you know, why not take a little bit of a vacation to the Caribbean by opening up some wonderful rum? You have all of these different things, and you kind of have like various levels of those spirits. So yeah, you can go for the really cheap stuff. You can go for the little higher end. But I think go for the not so bottom bottom rung, but go for the stuff like a little bit above that. And a lot of times you'll be surprised. And if if it all else fails, right? Let's say you get something and you absolutely hate it. Um, you can either give it to a friend. Which or is use a, it in a mixed drink. Use it in a mixed drink. Or um, one thing I do sometimes is I've, I, I was introduced to this idea of an infinity bottle. Yes. I didn't hear about this before, and it's actually a really cool idea. Why don't I explain it? All right. So I've got a decanter, right? And the thing with decanters is usually they just make your spirits look good. They're not something where you want to actually store it long term in it because it's not going to have that airtight seal. It's just really more for, hey, everybody, look at this beautiful hue that this whiskey's giving off. And I could put subpar whiskey in there and you'd say, boy, that looks wonderful. Well, you put a $20 bottle in the cancer, it looks like a $50 bottle. You got it. <laughs> so anyway, what I've been doing is I heard about it from uh, some other folks online um, who basically said, yeah, well, here's what you can do. When you've got like that last bit of whiskey in a bottle where you're like, man, I don't want to kill that bottle, but I kind of do. You know, I think there's always a certain level of, oh, I'm going to kill it. And then it's like... Well, especially if it was kind of a nice bottle. Right. And you're like, oh, well, there we go. It's gone. So there's a hesitancy to finish it. And the problem with whiskey is like once you open that bottle, you really should be finishing it within maybe two months. So if you do that, one of the nice little tricks I've picked up with this is you take it. Maybe you've got like, I don't know, maybe 12 ounces or something. or No, not 12 ounces. But maybe you've got like five or six ounces or so in there. Where you're getting to the bottom of the bottle, you don't want to completely see it go to waste. You put it in this other bottle, this decanter, and you just keep refilling it with all those other whiskeys. And it actually kind of blends and you kind of feel like you're learning a little bit about the blending process. And at the end of the day, you also have your own house version of whiskey that I think is pretty cool. So 
Uh, so for me, that's that's been something I've kind of been taking away as a little bit of a lesson and great way to have some good whiskey. So you're telling me you basically have created a melting pot of different liquors. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, maybe this is a dumb question, but what if you were to say, uh, okay, I have a bourbon, I have a bourbon, I have a bourbon, we're going to mix all the bourbons together. Do you have to stay straight like that? What I mean by that is could you throw in a scotch? Could you throw in... God forbid, could you throw in a rum or a vodka? How's that work? So I've stuck completely with whiskey. Okay. And I have added a little scotch. Now, the problem with scotch is most of the scotch that you're thinking it's the of. The peatiness. Very peaty. So you have to be really, really careful because it's something where that will very quickly overwhelm the whole flavor. So that's something where maybe I would put. Instead of like the five to six ounces, I would put maybe like, I don't know, two or three. So it's a little, it's enough that it adds some complexity and flavor, but it's not going to overwhelm the whole thing. And that would be like, I think the same where if I was to say, have one of these built almost entirely from Irish whiskeys, I wouldn't want to add probably most bourbons to it because I think that would overwhelm the flavor. Um, there's, it's, it's a more delicate flavor from the Irish whiskeys. So <laughs> does that mean that there are probably people who have... They're called infinity. What are, what are they called? Infinity. Infinity bottles. Infinity bottles. So, it, are you saying that there might be people who have five or six different infinity bottles? And hey, I put my bourbons in this bottle. I put my scotches in this one. I put my Japanese whiskeys in here. Oh yeah. I mean, is that is that a thing? Yeah. Actually, you know what's crazy about it? Some people have taken it to like an art form, and what I mean by that is like they'll actually be very precise and measure. How much goes into that? So if they ever wanted to reproduce that, they can. And some people... Sounds like they're like hyper chemists. Yeah. I mean, they are. And the interesting thing with that has been that some people have come up with basically recipes to basically put together a fake pappy. So, <laughs> so it's like, oh, you buy these six spirits and this is the way you mix them in this exact order and you'll get something pretty close to a pappy. Well, that's actually really interesting because, you know... With the internet, I'm sure there are people who've said, oh, if you follow this specific breakdown, you buy a total of $200 worth of bourbons. Mm -hmm. You can get something, and you follow this recipe, Yeah, you can get something that is in the neighborhood of what would otherwise be a $10,000 bottle. Let's just throw that out there. Sure. I mean, just the idea of that is, is fascinating. But, you know, one thing you didn't mention, and, mm. and I want you to cover, because I was looking at your Infinity Bottle the other day, and is it cinnamon? There's, there's a stick in there. What, what is that? Oh, so that was actually a gift from one of my friends. It's a, uh, it's a charred wooden bullet. It's oak. It's an, oh, really? Yeah. So the idea is that it's a charred wooden, you know, it's shaped like a bullet, but you put that in your bottle. And what that does is it gives it a little bit of extra flavor from being in a charred oak, uh, like in a barrel. So you keep that in there for maybe a month or so, I think is what they advertise. How long has yours been in there? Uh, probably like three months, four months. <laughs> um, hey, it still tasted pretty good when we had it the other night. Yeah, so it's an infinity bottle, so I don't know what is even left of that bullet, but my problem has been that I have to really finish off my infinity bottle to begin with to even like empty that bullet from it. Right, and it's a lot for one guy to drink. Right. So <laughs> you need to have a couple little parties uh, post COVID. Right. And then my problem is like if I've got a if I'm getting pretty down in my my infinity bottle, 
then I'm kind of like, ooh, you know, time to add more, right? And, and, and this might be a silly question, but is the idea calling it infinity is that in a weird way, if you're constantly continuing to top this off, the original bottles that you may have put in there three or four or five years ago, there's still aspects of it within the bottle. Is that the origin of the name? Yeah. So there's still little tiny bits of it. Now, got me if how much of it's good or how much of that actually has any flavor, but... Well, that, it's actually a really funny idea. Have you heard... Of, I mean, you might know this even better than me. Um, I remember, because you lived in Southeast Asia, mm. that there were places... I, I think there was one in Bangkok, but I'm sure there's others that have these 24-hour-a-day soup uh, restaurants. Oh, and yeah, they're, yeah. And they're making this soup... And they're constantly, you know, people come in and they serve people, yep. but they're constantly also adding to this broth and this soup. And so because of that, from what I understand, what you're eating, there are elements of this soup or stew or whatever you want to call it that has been in there for a long period of time. And that might sound gross, but apparently it is absolutely incredible. It is, you know, it's a must do when you're visiting some of these cities. Yeah, my goodness. Um, wow, the amount of like amazing food I had in Singapore uh, was... Um, now, to be fair, there was a few times I also got sick from some of the food. But Well, that's the par for the course. It's par for the course. But, man, some of that food... I, I think one of the big challenges I had when I came back to the U.S. after having such wonderful food... And a lot of it, just like you said, they keep kind of making it. It's got a history to it. It's also so far from like what you think of most Western food mm-hmm. um, that, yeah, I came back and everything tasted very bland and boring. And it was like I had to add like a bottle of hot sauce to like everything I was eating. <laughs> and it was offensive to my wife at one point because she was like, what do you mean you're putting hot sauce all over that? I don't know. Let's call it uh, pasta or something. Right, right, or meatloaf or something. Or meatloaf. And she's like, is that to mask my food and mask my cooking? And I'm like, no, it's a flavor enhancer. It does bring out a lot of great flavor. Yeah. But well, and you also lived in a, in a country where, keep me honest on this, but no one cooks themselves, right? You always go to restaurants. Yeah. You always go to those hawker centers, which I don't even know. I mean, it, it's a big thing in Singapore. How would you describe a hawker center? So a hawker center, I would say, is like, take like a mall food court, right? And then like, bring it down like, I don't know, like five notches. Um, Because what you're dealing with is you're dealing with basically a large food court where anybody, you know, anybody could really kind of open up your own stall. Now it's like maybe a 10 foot by 10 foot stall where you're making great food, you're doing whatever you want with it. I could sell you, you know, noodles. I could sell you something American. I could sell you whatever I want, right? But the operational costs are really low, right? You have a ton of foot traffic coming by. Um, But you see where some of these stalls, like, they have just a huge following. And it's weird, too, because there is a certain level of notoriety that happens, too, where people will be like, oh, man, like, so where I lived, the one next to us had a really, really amazing goat curry. So would people come from all over the island for yeah. that goat curry? That's where they would go. Yeah. So it's like, well, if you want goat curry, there's like maybe two or three places you go. Yeah. And, um, you know, for any Singaporeans potentially listening to this in the future, you'll be like, oh, yeah, by Lorong 3 Geelong, that hawker center. Yeah, that place was it. And I hope they're still around because it was amazing. Yeah. But 
yeah, all of these places kind of build up their own reputation, and they're very small, but the food is very reasonably priced. Well, I, and that was when I visited you. I remember quickly realizing that everything is astronomically expensive in Singapore, except the food. Like, everything, when you want to get a beer, $10, right? I heard about the cost of owning a car in Singapore. Very, very expensive. Yet, you could get a great meal oh, yeah. for like $2. Very reasonable. $2 US. And I think it just depends on what you're looking for, too. Because to be fair, like, you could go for the five-star restaurants. You could go for the full Crazy Rich Asians experience if that's what you wanted to. There's also the way to live normally, um, which is out there, too. But, yeah, I would say the biggest thing that I loved was kind of trying out the different food, different restaurants. Because a big thing that I loved in Singapore was how much of it was fusion. Mm -hmm. You had some of the Indian culture. You had some of the Chinese culture, you had some of the Malay, Indonesian culture, and you had the British culture, all kind of mixed together, and you just get amazing food. A most diverse city that I've ever been to in my entire life. You're walking down the street, and it's you have a mosque, a temple, a church, all in the same block. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but really unique, really unique experience. And it, it is funny, though, because I'm imagining, like... In the United States, if someone said, oh, on the other side of town, on the other side of Chicago, you got to go to this place, this restaurant, I would think, oh, it's probably a sit-down restaurant, nice food, you know, the table, napkins, all that. And that's not what hawker centers are at all. No. So I'm just imagining someone going across town, and it's like, you're essentially, you get your food, and then you sit down on like these little, uh, picnic tables isn't the right word, but little benches. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And... I guess maybe one way to kind of help our listeners is if you've ever been to like a major metro area, you've probably heard of street meat, right? <laughs> so these are like the little stands like at corners where somebody will be like, hey, you know, get a hot dog or hey, here's like some chicken and rice or something like that. It is not expensive. It's street food. But instead of like having a little cart, imagine like a whole kind of indoor um, I guess I guess you could say mall maybe because they're usually, but it's an outdoor mall. It's usually outdoor, but there is a like there is a roof over the whole place. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a very interesting experience. But I I loved it. Um, like I said, the only problem I ever had was and it happened a few times. It was part of the experience. But, part of the experience for but sure. My favorite thing with Singapore was um, so they would grade all of these places and they'd give them a letter grade and like A was you know awesome right and then you get to like f where it's like okay uh hygiene here is horrible but um, they wouldn't close them down i think they would at f okay. d you know was like whoa this is pretty this is pretty sketchy so so d basically we're not going to close you down but you know yeah. you might get sick just be warned right and then buyer be warned c was was <laughs> c was like you kind of you, you don't know you're rolling the dice B, you're usually pretty good. Like, I only saw a few A's, but... Um, Were least, there any places, though, that, like, you had coworkers say, oh, listen, I know this is a D, but you gotta go here. This place is awesome. No. <laughs> Not that I can think of. Because I think most of the places that really were that good, they, they, just because of, you know, there is some level of embarrassment. So they would hide those signs. Like, they have to display them, but they would still hide them. So I would be sitting down, and, like, while I'm sitting down, and I'm, like, looking over at the stall... That's when I'd be like, oh, that was a, you know, C minus or a D or something. And I'd be like, huh, 
Well, we'll see how things work out with this one. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Ron, we are going to hear a lot more about your adventures in Singapore sure. on later episodes. I think that we want to keep these relatively snackable. Sure. I'd say kind of as parting words for this podcast, this episode... You know, what are you envisioning for this series? What are kind of topics that you're looking forward to discussing? Uh, what are maybe people that you're excited to bring on? Maybe not necessarily by names, but by profession or by career. Right. Well, tell me about that. So, oddly enough, I've got a lot of friends who've done some different types of work in the show business. So, I've got, um, I had a really great friend from Singapore um, that I'm hoping I can bring on. Who's He's done a lot of great film work. Um, I've got another friend who's also done a lot with the film festivals, um, and I've got all, a bunch of different friends in different kind of businesses, just similar to you, just different industries, where what I'd love to do is, as much as Alex and I, I think, you know, I'm hoping that we're interesting enough in some level, but realistically, you're probably going to get bored of us after some point. Well, that's why the series is called Between Two Studs. It's not just two studs. Right. We're going to have another guest. Hence the word between. Who is going to help us to really kind of help with better understanding the world, getting ideas, and to ask questions that, you know, you just kind of would think, huh, yeah, like, what is the deal with that? Like, you have a friend who's an amazing chef, and to kind of pick his brain to be like, well, shoot, why is this this, and why do we think about that? Or yeah, and he's a fascinating human because he is was born in India, Yep. yet he's been classically trained, mm -hmm. and so he's got some French background, right? traditional French dining, uh, incorporated into all aspects of the dining industry, right? From street foods to cafeteria food to high-end dining. And so when you, when you have people like that, and that's just one example, um, you're able to really have a unique perspective and conversation. Sure. And, and that's the thing I think about all of our friends, really has been just to kind of have people who have that kind of different vantage point to have those kind of warm conversations where you just kind of want to pick their brain for a little bit and say, boy, how would the world be with this? Or what are your thoughts on that? I think those are the types of things that I foresee in this podcast in the future. Yeah, I agree, Ron. I think we're really looking forward to good conversation, good discussion, and uh, we look forward to having those conversations on future episodes. So with that, we've concluded our first episode of Between Two Studs. And we look forward to having more episodes soon. Kind of, sort of. I got to interject one little bit. Oh, here we go. Yeah, here we go. So we did actually record an episode before this. Now, I was going to pretend that didn't exist. I know, you shouldn't. But there are seven listeners out there who listen to that whole thing. I don't know how. Thank you for listening, by the way, but please rest assured that we've actually invested in some good audio, as you're now hearing. We're actually going to be doing editing. We're going to be doing things to a professional caliber that I think really are what we want on this show. So while I would call this episode one, I guess Ron would call this episode 1.1, 1 1.2. 1 well, I think what we're going to do is we're going to refer to that one as the long lost episode. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it never sees the light of day. Episode 00. zero. Yes, that'll be zero zero. It was the test to make sure that it could work. So, so with that, we're going to kind of wrap this episode up. Thank you for listening. Um, we sincerely appreciate it. We're going to have more high quality content just like this. And uh, we look forward to bringing you along in our adventures. All right. Take care. Thank you.